0: this week on The Futurists. If anything, I think COVID probably gave us permission to say, stop. We have got to do things differently here in America. And by different, it's getting away from that industrial model of coming into class, teaching by rote, and more of that structured, getting them ready for the typical nine to five, which we now know there is no typical nine to five. The types of skills that are required now believe it or not, are what they consider the soft skills, and that's why I emphasize the teamwork. And Mm -hmm. it's going to have to be competence in areas that you are going to be different than what artificial intelligence can do.
1: Well, welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm your host, Rob Turcic, with my co-host, Brett King. Brett King. I'm here, yep. Hi, Brett. Great to be back.
2: enjoying a steamy summer another lovely week in the hosting chair it is it is warm here in in rally where i i I just come back from bangkok (laughs) and you know it's funny because bangkok is really well equipped for the the whole heat stuff you know and and coming back here you realize you just take for granted that infrastructure that they have there but anyway it's 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 Uh, still nice weather out
1: i was over in europe and they do not have infrastructure for high heat and they're going through another heat wave of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's brutal. When there's yeah, no what is it? Four
2: percent of um, UK homes have air conditioning. I, like yeah. that at the moment, that's brutal. I, I remember yeah. growing up as a kid in Australia, in, in Melbourne. I I remember on days because we didn't have aircon back then. You know, this is like um, mid 70s. I remember sleeping on the tiles in the kitchen floor to try and get cool. So um, that's what people are probably doing in the UK right now, I, don't, I feel for them. But this is, uh, this is the world of climate change, you know? That's right.
1: And it takes, uh, it takes a certain aptitude to deal with a changing world. And that's our mission here at The Futurist. We're always trying to get people to think differently, maybe think a little more athletically about the future. You know, Brett, sometimes people say you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be a futurist. And generally, that's true. But on the other hand, it doesn't hurt to be a rocket scientist if you're trying to shape or guide the future. And this week, we have somebody really special on our show. A
2: rocket scientist, an actual rocket scientist. Our guest this
1: week is a bona fide rocket scientist. We are really thrilled to have someone who is a former NASA senior mission manager in the Flight Projects office. And that's the bridge from ground to, to space. Um, Now today, for the last 10 years, she's actually been an educator. So she's left rocket science and has gone into education. We're going to learn a little bit more about that. Um, Our guest this week is Wanda Harding. Wanda, welcome to The Futurists.
0: Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. We're excited to have you here. And we're excited to get right into this topic. You know, Brett is a gigantic space geek, and he's constantly talking about it, and bringing it up. And between us, we're quite impressed. You know, the idea that you can put a little representative of human of human consciousness on a planet that's hundreds of millions of miles away is kind of an astonishing feat. Perhaps the most astonishing thing that humans have done, and yet we don't even pay attention to it most of the time. But right now I think that there's like some four different uh, robots on the planet on the planet Mars. Is that right? Not if you count
2: the orbiters. Yeah. Oh, there's more.
0: Well, <laughs> so yeah, you have them. and if you count the landers. So Right. Yes, NASA's been very busy. The first rover was Sojourner, which was about the size of a skateboard. Uh we advanced back in 2003 when we sent up the twin rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, and those were Kind of what you call trailblazers. They were proof of concepts. And so by the time you get to Curiosity, which is about the size of a small car, you have a very robust, I called it, it was like a roving geologist with its own mobile laboratory, just able to explore the planet. And it was so cool being a part of the team that was responsible for getting it from Earth to space, getting it from Earth to Mars. If we did our job right, then once Curiosity landed, it would be able to do some fascinating things. And that's what it's been doing for the past 10 years. It's so well, cool. that's yeah. what's
1: so astonishing is that the original mission was only planned to be about two Earth years or maybe one full Martian year, um, which on its own is a pretty amazing feat. But here we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of that achievement, and it's still going. I read that they just extended the mission another three years. Is that correct?
0: Right. That is correct. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, too, because when you think about opportunity, right, it was only supposed to be about 90 days. And it was almost what 14 years later?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, when it came to Curiosity, I mean, even though that's the mission design life that they budgeted for and that's what they planned for, um, the robustness of the rover itself, I'm not surprised that we're 10 years later. And sometimes I almost forget that it has been 10 years, but I'm not surprised that it's 10 years later and it's still giving us great data back. And it served as a model for perseverance. And so, similarly, I imagine you know, ten years down the road, we'll be celebrating the twentieth anniversary for Curiosity and the tenth anniversary for Perseverance.
2: That's an, oh, wow. that's incredible. That's incredible.
0: Tell yeah. me, some of those
2: Voyager,
1: sorry, Voyager spacecraft are still working, and those things are as old as I am, practically.
0: <laughs> and they barely. Like, we talked about to the interstellar boundary, and so exactly. they're still going. I remember as a child going to Disney World shortly after the Viking missions. Uh, reported back their landing on Mars. I think you all probably are old enough to remember that as well but that was in the 70s and I'm looking at that mission as a child and I'm going, wow, that is so crazy but I never had any idea that I would be a part of the team that would send something up some years later and it would actually be moving around the moving around the planet.
1: Well tell us a little bit about how that happened. Tell exactly. us about your journey yeah, yeah. to the to the senior mission manager.
0: Yeah. So as a child, I wanted to be a concert pianist. That was my goal. I wanted to play for the (laughs) New York York Philharmonic. And I attended a math and science high school. One teacher, that's all it takes, had one teacher that said, you know what, you might make a good engineer. So I believed her and ended up majoring in engineering in college. Didn't put the music aside, but um, ended up with that path. Went on to Hampton University for undergrad and Georgia Tech for master's and After about a year in construction, Opportunity opened up to apply for a position with NASA. And that's where I got my start down at Kennedy Space Center, working with the International Space Station program. And after some years as a systems engineer with that program, working with the Italians on the logistics modules that they were providing for the space station, had an opportunity to join our launch services program, which is responsible and I sometimes forget that I'm not with them anymore. So forgive me if I say we sometimes, but they're responsible for sending all of the satellites to orbit. And what made Curiosity's launch so special is that in July of 2011, when the booster, the Atlas V booster arrived at Kennedy Space Center, was also coincident with the same month of the last space shuttle launch. And so as we were closing out one era, we were still, you know, exploring and getting ready to send the most ambitious Mars mission we had launched to date at that time. So, you know, for me, my team of over, you know, 200 engineers across the time period, just responsible for the launch piece. This is this doesn't even include the team at JPL actually building the rover itself. But um, what's required there to make sure that we provide that safe journey from Earth to Mars without damaging the spacecraft with the launch environment, making sure, um, unlike Sojourner and Uh, spirit and opportunity, we had the MMRTG, the uh, nuclear power source, uh, curiosity too. And that's also what has contributed to the longevity. But saying all of that to say that was the path that we had, that I had rather to the role of senior mission manager. So um, MSL, the missions that I had the opportunity to work, that was probably one of the most exciting ones for me.
1: I can imagine. Okay, so you kind of worked your way up. They gave you responsibility. You got introduced to new responsibilities, and then you made progress within the organization. And as you alluded to, um, JPL is Jet Propulsion Labs out here where I live uh, yes, in Pasadena, and that's the group that designs the actual robot craft that's going to be um, uh, you know rolling around on the surface of the planet. Uh, and so there's quite a lot of coordination. I don't know if people realize just how much coordination there is. Uh, a few years back, I saw that film with Norman Zeef uh, about the um, the launch uh, and, and how tense it was because one team after another has to hand over responsibility. You know, there's the group that's getting the rocket into space, and then it's moving over to Mars, and then you're coming in and there's landing, and then there's the, uh, will the parachutes open or whatever, you know, the landing process is and the balloons. And so, I mean, it's so, it's so filled with tension.
0: It, it is, it's and astounding. it has very well orchestrated. I mean, as a matter of fact, when you think about it for... You know, the mission concept for MSL was back in 2003 and it was in 2011 when we actually launched. So you may be asking, well, you know, what were you doing during those eight years? And as you are developing the mission, going through the various design reviews, from the launch perspective, we're also very much a part of that. Uh, There are some constraints on size. There are constraints on mass. um, Wanting to make sure when you're designing the trajectory to minimize the number of correction maneuvers. The spacecraft has to do once we separate it from the spacecraft, we need to make sure that our injection point is accurate. And we were excited. Me and a few of my team members had a chance to go out to JPL August of 2012 uh, for the night that Curiosity landed. And I tell you, it was tense, but it was exciting at the same time. There's obviously a delay, but when we got that signal that the touchdown had gone successfully, Everybody was excited, but for me, the best part was the picture. Curiosity sent back a picture of its shadow on the surface of Mars. Right, that was like from our perspective. We said, "Yes, we did our part. Now Curiosity is ready to go and do do its part." And, That's
1: quite a thrilling moment. And, so and we really we, almost a decade of preparation to get that right.
0: Get that to get that right. Yes, and the orchestration is very key. Um, yeah. No, no, I
2: was going to say we call that the seven minutes of terror, right?
0: Well, even <laughs> that, and, and we that
2: percent landing stage, yeah.
0: yes, that part was definitely they call it the seven minutes of terror, and everything had to be done just right in order for it to be successful.
1: Well, and it's quite perilous, like as you pointed out, uh, if you don't get the uh, insertion point just correct, then that minimal atmosphere that's around Mars can act like a kind of shield that bounces the, the satellite. Out. In fact, I think that happened. A couple of times in the past. Well we had actually,
2: you know, historically it's really hard to land stuff on Mars, you know, like the if you look at the Russian missions and and even um the uh, ESA, um the the Beagle. Um, spacecraft, that all get in because someone um, did calculations based on metrics versus Imperial or vice versa. I can't remember what it was. And so, yeah, you know, historically, I mean, NASA's recent success with landing rovers and so forth on on Mars has been quite exceptional given the history, right, Wanda?
0: It is. It has been quite exceptional. And so when you think back for uh, Sojourner and Opportunity, you had, I call it the bouncing bag, there. And so with the sky crane for MSL, yes, we were definitely, that's why they called it seven minutes of terror because one of the, well, I guess I can say that now, but, you know, we wanted to make sure that that descent stage and the uh, sky crane didn't operate while it was sitting on the launch pad too. So there are a lot of safety controls that you have to put into place there. But yeah, so precise landing location, having that um, operation in place, like I said, it served as a great proof of concept for perseverance. And as you start yeah. to think ahead for what's next for these subsequent missions to Mars, I guess, you know, we're trying to get ourselves closer and closer to knowing enough about the planet so that when we finally send a human expedition, we know what we can exploit on Mars, what we need to bring with us, the type of technology that would be required. And that's what makes the discoveries for MSL unique in the sense that from a scientific perspective, you're gathering enough information, you're verifying the big question about water on Mars. So curiosity right. is to, to answer that. The question on habitability, could life have existed given, you know, the presence of sulfur, given the presence of nitrogen, given the presence, you know, of carbon, could it have existed? Curiosity is helping to answer Answer that. So then the next question becomes, well, if I send a human, because right now, Earth is the only place in our solar system that we know of where we can go outside without a spacecraft, a spacesuit on. We go anywhere else, you're going to, you're basically replicating the environment and the conveniences that you have here on, on Earth. And so it's just exciting just to see what might be out there in the future, which is why I love being a teacher, because I am interacting day to day with those people who will be making the decisions and designing the missions 20, 30 years from now.
1: What kind of lessons do you impart to your students that are derived from your time at NASA?
0: Believe it or not, the most important lesson has nothing to do with the technology. It has more to do with teamwork. And yes, I want to stress to them the importance of recognizing that different people have different skill sets. So like from our team, you have mechanical engineers, you have aerospace engineers, you have electrical engineers, different disciplines coming together to solve a problem, recognizing the expertise that they bring and appreciating the big picture, total buy-in on the mission, the message that I'm giving to my students is no different. There's teamwork, Mm -hmm. each of you brings a different strength, And so putting those together is what drives you towards mission success. The content we can get, but if you can master that teamwork piece, then you're going to be an asset to any team that you work on.
1: That's quite a a good thing to teach students. What grade, like what age are the students that you teach?
0: So I've had the opportunity of teaching eighth through 12th grade. So I've, I have middle school experience um, and I have high school experience. And it's interesting as you work with each grade level, just recognizing maturity that comes along the receptiveness of the lesson. Um, You're, you know, at this stage of the game, we're trying to encourage more of a uh, constructivist mode where we're allowing the students to discover on their own. A lot of kids are sometimes a little bit fearful. I have students that have said, I don't like math. And we talk about, well, why? What makes it so challenging? And as you go through and recognize how often you use it in everyday life, you realize, okay, there's really nothing to be afraid of. Uh, Mm -hmm. I really can do this.
2: So, um, you know, we, we do have some emerging thinking in terms of education. You know, one one of the things you see when you observe the education system that we have in the US or the UK or Australia, where I'm from, it is that, um, you know, the, the model of education we have in public schools today tends to be that that we, we came up with back in the Industrial Revolution. It's a bit of a, a factory line, you know, you 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 put them, you, the students have to sit, um, obey the instructions from the teacher, the manager at the, the class to become sort of obedient factory drones. You know, that was sort of the design of the system. Um, but it's sort of coming to, you know, standardized testing and all of this seems like it's coming to a natural conclusion in that we need to rethink education for the 21st century, particularly for engineering and technology challenges that we have. Um, You know, Elon Musk created his own school at Astra. Um, You have Jack Maher, who's, uh, you know, a big proponent of the future of education, saying we're going to have to, um, you know, teach our, our children to differentiate. From machines, um, and then we have like the Nordics who have done some really interesting approaches to learning. They seem very successful at it, but very unconventional from a classroom perspective. A lot of um, play, a lot of uh, storytelling, immersion in experiences, and things like that, which which is very different from the model that we have generally in the West. So, where do you where do you think we need to go to really engage students with? Um, you know, STEAM, STEM type uh, stuff and make it sort of more, make education, you know, uh, more 21st century
0: relevant? If anything, I think COVID probably gave us permission to say, stop, we have got to do things differently here in America. And by different, it's getting away from that industrial model of coming into class, teaching by rote and more of that structured getting them ready for the typical 9 to 5 which we now know there is no typical 9 to 5 and one of the you know I've been following some of the articles from the uh National Science Council and a couple of things that they're they're pointing out is the fact that the types of skills that are required now believe it or not are what they consider the soft skills and that's why I emphasize the teamwork and mm-hmm. it's going to have to be competence in areas that you Are going to be different than what artificial intelligence can do. And so it's that critical thinking and decision making and being able to discern that not necessarily something automated or programmed will be able to do. And so how do you prepare the future to do that? It's also looking at, you know, solving many of the problems that the industrial revolution created. And we're having to, you know, find some cleanups on on that part. So it's opening the door to some new problems, new opportunities for innovation. But the way we prepare our students can't be the same way it was when I was in school 30 years ago.
2: Absolutely.
1: One yeah. of the things we do at the University of Nebraska, where I work, uh, I'm an advisor to the digital media program there. And um, some of the professors have developed a program where they're Teaching writers how to work with GPT-3, so they're teaching um, creative writers how to use artificial intelligence not as uh, you know not as a way to automate writing per se, but more as a way to enhance their own skill. And and this fits in with that general notion of uh, of race with the machines, don't race against the machines. So when you teach about collaborativity or working together uh, or you know being a good teamwork good teammate. You're not limiting that to being a good teammate with other humans. It's also you're teaching people to have a more collaborative approach to technology. I would imagine,
0: and that and that is the case uh, right now. When you talk about technology in secondary education, most people, you know, link it to some digital asset, whether it's a learning platform, um, something that helps with the assessment. But you also want to make it such that the students are using it to be creative. And not necessarily just reactive or just doing an assignment, but kind of making it a partner. So that's something teachers have to learn how to do. And so it's a whole, when you're talking about the shift, it's not just changing what happens in the classroom, but it's also changing the teachers so that they are prepared to make those changes in the classroom.
2: I mean, I think part of that's part of it is if you're going to change the system and make it more effective, you know, we have to find a way for teachers to adapt and so forth as well. And that's not necessarily how we train teachers either, right?
0: One of the things that I am a proponent of is having teachers just invite today's experts in to talk to the students so that they can hear firsthand. This is current technology. This is where we're headed. And this is where, you know, your leadership is going to come into play. And when they're interacting with those experts In their classroom, it starts to bring it to life because the teacher can't do everything, but they can serve as a host and a facilitator. And that's one of the things that I've been doing and want to do more of is expose my students, not just to, you know, it was cool that I worked at NASA, but not just to me, but kind of getting them exposed to some other things that they could possibly pursue, opportunities they don't even know exist.
2: Showing the Uh,
1: possibilities, yeah. When you talk about inviting the experts to share their wisdom with an audience, that's exactly what we try to do here at The Futurists. Uh, we're going to take a little break right now. You've been listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Robert Tursic, And our guest this week is Wanda Harding. She is a rocket scientist who is now a high school teacher. Welcome and we'll be coming back Breaking after a short Banks, break. And you can hear more about global that and on Radio show So stay podcast.
2: tuned. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week
1: since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm JP Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks.
0: Welcome back to The Futurists. This week, uh,
2: we're talking to Wanda Harding, a uh, a teacher who has uh, previously, of course, worked as a mission manager for NASA, senior mission manager for NASA. And, um, you know, we have a great uh, history of NASA um, people leaving and becoming educators, even Neil Armstrong. You know, taught of course uh, after he left. So I, that's a great legacy that you're carrying on, uh, Wanda. Um, tell me, um, you know, you you mentioned briefly at the start, it, it only takes one teacher, but tell me about that teacher for you in terms of the teacher that made that made you understand the possibilities.
0: So the teacher that made me understand, and her name is Miss Turner, and we thought she was the hardest teacher there. She taught calculus and AP computer science. Um, As a, I didn't want to confess at the time that I was a nerd, but I guess looking back over it, I probably was. But I just appreciated the way the numbers just kind of talked. And I remember my, one of my computer science projects, it was actually an animation of Superman flying across a night skyline. Wow. Keep in mind,
2: this was probably- well. Yeah, what what computer technology? I'm getting
0: ready to tell you now because I'm dating myself. <laughs> but this was on an Apple II using basic code. So I'll just leave. Well,
2: I learned to code <laughs> on a VIC 20, so we're about the same vintage there. And and uh, yeah, I learned to code using a card stacking machine with uh, with graphite pencils. So I might even be a little. I might be dating myself a little bit older, but, uh, but- I, we're in the same general area. Okay. Yeah.
0: So needless to say, I enjoyed I enjoyed that. And because the teacher was able to see how much I enjoyed working on those independent type projects, she just casually mentioned one day you might want to consider engineering. And so, you know, at the time as I looked, you know, I was doing my research on colleges to pursue or colleges to attend that might be of interest to me, I kept that in the back of my mind. And when I got to Hampton, one of my freshman professors was a retired IBM engineer. And I just appreciated the depth and wealth of knowledge that he brought to the class just by the mere fact that he had all of that experience. And I said, you know, if I ever teach, I want to be that kind of teacher. I want to walk in my classroom with some experience because it allows my it allows the students to know there's a connection between what you're learning in the classroom and real life. And so I initially wanted to do like him, but on a shorter term, I wanted to work three to five years and then go back and teach. And it turned out I lost track of time and I ended up working 20 plus years <laughs> And uh, with the fellowship program, was able to find a bridge from industry into the classroom. And so I went back to school, got a master's in teaching so that I could understand, you know, the thought process, the pedagogy and all of the appropriate concepts for modern 20th, 21st century teaching. It's really nice to hear that. Yes. And it was very fortunate for me because I wanted to come back to my hometown and not too far from where I grew up to actually teach. So the fellowship program checked both of those boxes. It was available in the state of Georgia. And I was able to have my initial placement in Athens, Georgia, which is about an hour outside of Atlanta. And the subsequent year, I was able to get hired on at um, atlanta public schools which is the district where i grew up and received my public education so it's just a thrill to be able to come back home and you know kind of give my message to the children the students the scholars that you know dream big and you know i try to be an advocate a cheerleader and do what i can to provide that exposure so that they don't shy away from opportunities and think that it's probably not for them
1: excellent I'm starting to see that one of the themes of your career and as you pursued you know, building the future in your own way, one of those themes is that you are a bridge builder. You're a person who makes connections. Um, you know, when you were when you were managing um, projects at the uh, at Flight Projects Office, so the launch services there, that's the bridge from Earth to space. And in your career after that, you were building a bridge from the space and science industry to high schools and to middle schools. And you've done another way, uh, another kind of bridging, I think. I want to talk a little bit about your book where you're building another kind of bridge. And one of the things we've noticed is that sometimes when astronauts return to Earth after they've spent time either in orbit or uh, on the space station is that they come back with a profoundly different spiritual perspective than they had before they left. In other words, the experience of being in space actually transformed their sense of self yeah, it's called the, the uh, overview effect, the
2: isn't it? Is that what they call it, the overview effect? Yeah.
1: I think apparently, if you if you get far away enough from this planet, you start to notice that it's a little glowing blue marble in this vast emptiness, and it starts to seem a little bit more special in some profound ways. Tell us a little bit about your book, and tell us a little bit about your faith.
0: And so the book is entitled "When I Consider God's Amazing Universe." Uh, the title is a play on Psalm 82, where David is talking about considering you know, the the moon and the stars. And as you mentioned, you know, the astronauts have the privilege of actually, you know, leaving our surface and looking back and going, wait, this is incredible. And what I wanted my readers to understand as a woman of faith is, you know, fortunately, we have some great images from Hubble, really excited about what we're going to get from James Webb. But the book is a biblical journey through space. I've taken a few verses from the Old Testament that just talk about different aspects of space and how it attributes the orderliness of everything, and that there has to be some intention behind it. We all want to know where do we come from? Why are we here? You know, what's the point? And you think about how vast and large the universe is, and then you scale in and go, okay, there's our Milky Way galaxy. And then you zoom in some more and there's our solar system, you zoom in some more and there's earth, you zoom in some more and there's your house. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller each time, but it doesn't take away from the significance of each human life. And so the book, in my perspective, is just kind of taking, yes, look at everything that's there, what's been created when you look up in the night sky and beyond, but don't take away from the fact of how special you are as an individual. And as a woman of faith, it's how special you are to our creator. And so that's the takeaway from the book. It's written for small children intentionally. Um, it's simple, but it's also the type of book as the adult shares and reads with the child, they're also getting a bit of faith assurance. And what I want, you know, also to help people see is that science and your belief or science and your faith Are not enemies. Science and your belief are not mutually exclusive. If you look at science as, you know, how we describe and predict the process of nature so that we can exploit it to our benefit. Well, where did nature come from? It didn't just pop up. And how do we know that it's so beneficial to us? You walk outside and there are herbs. You walk outside. There's air to breathe. And, you know, we're able to create rockets. To take us to space, we are able to create telescopes that allow us to explore. And, you know, it all just seems it's not coincidental. And that's where, you know, on a very deep level, but from a simplistic perspective, that's what the book is intended to do.
1: So you're really trying to build a bridge there. And I think um, I think that that bridge again. Yes. Yeah, there's two groups you're trying to reach. You know, and in one, On one hand, there are lots of people who are very focused on science. Many of them are listeners to this show. Um, and those folks tend to be a little skeptical uh, about religion, particularly traditional religions. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's also a group that is faith-based that has become conditioned to being very skeptical about science. And unfortunately, we live in a very polarized time. So those divisions have gotten deeper and deeper in recent years. So tell us a little bit about your effort to bridge the gap between those two groups, because I think this is quite an interesting topic for us.
0: It is. And, you know, beyond the opportunity, I've mostly spoken to faith-based groups. So Mm -hmm. it's been a little one-sided on that scenario. I've not had as much opportunity to speak to a group that may be more skeptical on the religious side. Mm -hmm. And that part is something I'm looking forward to. I would love to have those discussions. And, you know, I've often heard somebody, you know, not often, but I have heard it say, you know, well, one of us is going to be right. And you're not quite sure. Either there is a creator or there isn't. And so some will say, well, which risk do you want to take? Because if there isn't a creator, okay, well, I've still lived a pretty good life. But if there is a creator, you're in trouble. And troubled by, you've missed out on so much that could have been a blessing or a part of of your life. And so when you come to science and uh faith and where they kind of bump heads, what a lot of people I think mistake is that faith is not intended to constrain your life. It is intended to enhance and provide purpose for your life. And if you rely on science to give you permission to just, you know, to live the life, that's fine, but you still don't need to necessarily deny the fact that you can't tell me when you look at a pine cone that that was just some random design. That's Pascal's wager, that's what we call and, and it. I'm right? getting ready to go. I mean, and I'm you know teaching my students that we use mathematics to describe the patterns, with the patterns we see in nature, and it's no coincidence the that- The
2: Fibonacci sequence, all of this we-
0: you see? Yeah, yeah. There, so it's no coincidence that it's that it's there, and it's repeatable, and observable, and it just has a language of its own that's been around for so long, and we're able to study it. But you know, the more you study, you're able to make connections again.
2: So, Which, so we we have like na- one of NASA's greatest gifts to us has been opening our eyes to the universe, helping us understand things that we we couldn't, you know, p- prior to, um, you know, the early lunar, lunar landers on Mars, mm-hmm. you know, we had uh, people looking up at the skies, imagining that the Martian canals were places where, you know, these huge populations lived and so forth. And we get there and the first images uh, that come back from Mars show this crater, cratered landscape and so forth. But... Yeah, you know, we are getting we have made some phenomenal discuss, d- discoveries. I think it was curiosity that first photographed um water water on on the surface of Mars, right? When it dug a trench and we saw some ice crystals
0: and they evaporated later. That was curiosity, right? That I was think? curiosity and there was also a lander that we have near the polar region. Of- right.
2: Insight? Uh, no, it wasn't Insight, it was another one, right? I, yeah, I remember I remember, yeah.
0: Hold on, I can tell you in just a minute. But yeah. go ahead, and then I'll interrupt you with the yeah. mission.
2: No, no, so I was going to ask you this question: Is that you know we a phoenix a uh, uh, phoenix, uh, phoenix lander? Of course, thank you. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, these discoveries, of course, um, you know, uh, support the the early wet Mars theory and, and what you were talking about at the, the opening of the show. But, um, you know, we have James Webb, which you've already mentioned, and, and exoplanets. You know, when you started at NASA, you know, uh, well, I don't know. It depends on the timing. But like, you know, when I was at high school, the accepted wisdom was that the Earth solar system was fairly rare, and now we find that every star has a solar a planetary system so that's something that we've learned in my lifetime but you know we are now we can do atmospheric analysis uh, you know of uh, exoplanets even now I've re- i was reading in scientific american um the last month's issue that we're proposing there are exomoons and we're trying to figure out ways to measure those. Um, but so we've got that, and 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 James Webb may very well, um, you know, say they've discovered, um, you know, planetary life, you know, by measuring exoplanet atmospheres. Um, we've got the Europa Clipper, which is a mission, um, you know, that maybe might launch in twenty twenty four. We've got the Psyche sixteen mission going next month. You know, all this continuing exploration, but. Um, whether it's those missions or whether it's when we get boots on Mars and maybe we discover some, um, you know, a bacterial life or fossils or something like that, or we we find evidence of, of you know, a, a second genesis outside of the Earth. How do you think that will change our view of, like, faith? Because some people, but the Bible doesn't explicitly uh, exclude that possibility. But of course, you know, the the sphere or the domain of, of the Bible tends to be, uh, you know, the earth and God's relationship with humans on, on the earth. Um, so how do you think that will change our perception of the universe?
0: So I think it will, I don't think it will diminish faith. And the reason I say that is because it still leaves room for a creator. We're focused on what's here on earth, we define life as we know it here and to find, you know, existence. You, you talk about the birth of stars. And so we've ascribed life almost already to other aspects of the of the universe. And we have no idea what those discoveries will tell us. I tell you one thing it will do is it will drive us to find out more to try to understand. And then if it's any indicator of, you know, either our more definition or clarity on our past or an indicator on future, it's it's wide open. And what, again, when I talk about uh, the bridge and the faith that I have, I still ascribe to the fact that it is discovering what already exists. And right. from a faith-based perspective, what exists was created by by God. And I am a firm believer that if we do discover something else, it was because he wanted us to find it.
2: Well, science is all about unfolding the knowledge of the universe, right? So yes. you know and so yeah.
0: you know, we've 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 gone from thinking that the earth was the center and everything else revolved around it to the sun being the center of our solar system, but you didn't have to change any of the wording in the Bible.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. That's
0: and true. so, you know, Hubble has opened up the doors to, you know, what's beyond our solar system and with some clarity that we can kind of see what's out there. And some of those bright stars are we recognize now our galaxies. They're not just singular stars, but it doesn't change anything that's being that's been written. So, you know, as we explore, get boots on Mars and you know, understand, well, could Mars have had some sort of past? Send a human up there. Let's see if there's, you know, additional expeditions we can find. But it's again, I get back to preparing that next generation. That's why I love being in the classroom because we're having this discussion now, but 20, 30 years from now, they will be the ones making those discoveries, making yeah. decisions about what do we do with that information? Why is it important? What problems, you know, will we be able to solve because we know this additional information? You know, what new industries can we create because we now know this information the the possibilities are endless?
2: Again, NASA's been a pioneer in in that respect as well, creating all sorts of technologies that's that's been useful. Um, uh, do you follow the um, the starship test program that SpaceX is uh, doing? If, you know because th- there's a possibility um that you know SpaceX could be actually instead of a, a, a instead of NASA, or in cooperation with NASA at least, could be the first uh, to put boots. On the ground on Mars, and you now how, how does that feel as a, as someone who came up through that culture at NASA, where when NASA had driven all of this space exploration for so long, to now sort of think that maybe you know we've got a you know a billionaire and his his corporation going to be the first on Mars.
0: And so, what's interesting during the latter part of my career with NASA, commercial space was very big, and especially. Right. From our law services perspective as well, th- between you know, did you me-
2: cross over with Jim Bridenstine?
0: Uh, let's see. Uh, Charlie Bolden was the last oh, Charlie. Okay. Yeah,
2: because because uh, both of them, both Charlie. Well, you know, uh, the Obama administration and, and Charlie pioneered that, of course. But um, you know, Jim, Jim was. Sorry, I'm getting into NASA policy. No, no,
0: no, you're fine. You're fine. But I mean, it was, you know, it didn't just start with him.
2: Right, exactly. It was
0: something in the works. I mean, even when we, you know, as I mentioned, um, 2011 with the last shuttle launch, I mean, there was discussion of commercial space even before we concluded the space shuttle program. So the thought has been there all along. And, you know, when uh, SpaceX provided launch services that we could also use to launch our satellites. And then they were able to provide, you know, launch services to get the crews to the International Space Station, which gave us an option other than using the Russian vehicles to get to the International Space Station. So it's an intentional progression, if you will, to get that partnership and then to get private industry interested. And so. Musk has taken that and run with it. So it will be interesting to see who puts the boots on the ground first.
2: And also must learn to program when I come a Vic-20. I'll just point that out. That's okay. what we have in common. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're starting
1: to see other countries get into it as well. Japan, yeah. China, even India, you know, the other nations are starting to at least try to make uh, reach reach the moon. Uh, so, yeah, it's a lively time. Competition's good because competition makes you you know up your game a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Um, and the international partnership, again, is, in, is intentional when you think about the International Space Station. So, it, you know, it's purposeful that the United States, yes, lead, but not by itself, not a solo act.
2: Did you work with people at Star City on the
0: ISS? I did not. I focused mostly on the multipurpose logistics module, which was developed by the Italian Space Agency. Right. And right. Um, had the opportunity. We were... At Kennedy Space Center, the did pillow- you have
2: to learn to talk with your hands when you were negotiating? With I did but I was
0: glad that they were also able to speak English. My Italian was very limited,
2: so
0: <laughs> ah, that's funny. But no, it was, it was great. Um, and appreciating the fact that you know the world seems smaller when you have an opportunity to work with somebody on a on a common project like that. So it was was really great. So
2: this stage of the program, as we wrap it
0: up, I want to get a bit out there and you, you, know, you can have an
2: education uh, piece on this okay. lens on it or on space program. But, you know, um, let's let's jump out 30 or 40 or 50 years into the future. Um, what developments either technologically or from a um, you know space exploration perspective, do you think? might be the most exciting that might be the most um, um, significant from a human development perspective what what excites you about the future
0: you know I grew up watching the Jetsons and as far-fetched as that was I mean from my perspective I think it would be exciting if our future provided an opportunity for first of all anyone that wanted to pursue any particular dream, regardless of the field that they would have the education and background to be able to do so. Um, I'm a, I'm looking forward to space travel as luxury. So I would love to an affordable flight to be able to just take a quick swing around the moon. I think that, no, would, me too. that would be nice. Yeah. To be able to, to Maybe we
2: can that. get together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like a, just a, you know, stargazing trip as you ride out to the moon. Um, you know, as far as medical technology, I would, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look back at those 1960s, 70s images of what the future would be like between Star right. Trek and Jetsons and thinking, you know, why not? I mean- it, Yeah, we
2: just did a show on the Jetsons like two weeks ago in terms of what they predicted. So it's funny you mentioned that, but- And, uh,
0: and so, you yeah. know, why not? That would be, you know, that would be nice. And, you know, when it comes to senior care and elderly- Being able to, you know, allow them to, and I say them, shoot, if I'm living during that time, I'll be one of them, but being able to live comfortably and have a higher quality of life, you know, independent of the fact that I'm, you know, 80 or 90 years old, still able to just, you know, have that luxury of being able to enjoy and the conveniences that are available. So, again, so, so, the possibilities are endless.
2: Maybe let me ask you this question uh, to finish up. You know, if, if you were speaking to a young you, a young African-American woman growing up in, um, you know, the United States day with all this division and so forth that we have, um, but all of these possibilities, what would you say to them? How would you inspire them?
0: Don't let it hold you back. Someone asked recently, you know, what was it like being – you know, one of the few black women and, you know, in the case of the mission director center on the day of launch and there, there were three rows of managers. They are part of the launch countdown and, you know, being the only black woman, the only black person in the room, it's, you know, what did, what did you think about it? And I told him, I didn't think about it until after the fact, when somebody pointed it out. And to me, that's important because The focus is really being a part of the team, being able to to contribute and, you know, yes, it's significant. You want to see more people that look like you. And so the young, you know, to the young me, I would say, don't let that slow you down. Go ahead. Pursue your dream. Do the work. Yeah.
2: Well, Wanda Harding, thank you for joining us this week on The Futurist. It's been a really interesting conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, but um, you're an inspiration and, um, you know, we love the mission you're on and let us know how we can help.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And I want to encourage your listeners, um, stay tuned for the book announcement. You can follow my Twitter, Wanda J. Harding, and also check out my website, WandaHarding.com. And again, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity to hang out with you, Robert and Brett. This has been fantastic.
1: Thanks, Flod. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and you're an inspiration for both of us. Uh, We've enjoyed every every moment of this. And again, remind us, the name of your book is When I Consider God's Amazing Universe. And it sold out, the first printing. So you're actually, congratulations, you're going into a second printing. When will that be available?
0: So that will be available later this fall. And so... That's why I say stay tuned. We'll be making big announcements in the September timeframe and um, announcing pre-sales. And then once the book is released, we hope that it inspires and encourages all of the readers and those that would care to take it in.
1: Fabulous. Well, Wanda Harding, engineer, author, musician, steam advocate, educator, and rocket scientist. Thank you very much for joining us on The Futurist this week. It's been a great pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you. you, if you like this episode, don't forget to give us a shout out on social media, you know, give us a five-star rating on wherever it is that you uh, listen to the show, download it, uh, tell your friends about it, uh, anything helps uh, get the get the traffic up there. But, um, you know, of course, you, you join us next week. We'll be talking to more uh, futurists. Our thanks to Kevin Hersham, Lisbeth Severance uh, Sylvie and Carlo, who look after our social media um, and, uh, you know, the whole team at Provoke Media that help us put this show together. Um, but we'll be back next week with another exciting guest talking about the future and until then we'll see you oh, in, the the in the future well that's it for the futurists this week
1: if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five star review that really helps other people find the show And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.